Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is sponsored in part by 4Athletics Apparel. I hope a lot of you since last week have gone to 4Athletics.com and checked out the amazing crowdfunded apparel that they offer. I love this new sponsor. I love the idea that these guys are into what we're doing here and they're supporting our cause. Anytime we get a win-win situation like this with a sponsor, I think it's just amazing. And I love the idea that they use the same crowdfunding model that we do to design, construct, and sell fitness apparel. It's new and it's innovative, a lot like what we're doing here. No one's ever done these types of crowdsource investigations of these cold cases before, and we're making amazing progress. And the work that we're doing is what inspired these guys to want to get in touch with me so they could help support the cause. And that's one reason to love these guys. But the other is that they have amazing fitness apparel. All the clothes they've sent me are incredible. They're durable. They're comfortable. They're just extremely high-quality, made-in-America clothing. And not only do they crowdfund the production so they keep the prices super low, they even crowdfund their ideas. I was just talking to Ben last night from 4Athletics. I was telling them my wife says she typically works out in just a sports bra, and I noticed they didn't have any on their site. And Ben told me that they've heard this from other customers, and they're currently in the process of developing a new sports bra. Their entire model is making the clothing that people want. And it's not just about the way they look, but how they feel. I can't stress enough the quality of this clothing. So if you're into fitness, I urge you as quickly as possible to go to 4athletics.com and buy some of their apparel because right now, only until July 17th, They're giving Truth and Justice listeners this special offer. If you use my promo code TRUTH at checkout, they're going to give you 15% off of their already incredibly low prices. Now, because they love what we're doing here, they're still going to offer a discount after the 17th for our listeners, but it won't be that full 15% that you can get this week. So go to 4athletics.com and use my promo code TRUTH until July 17th to get 15% off of your entire purchase. That's 4Athletics, F-O-U-R, athletics.com, and use my promo code, TRUTH. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to start this episode out by saying we did it. All of us together, this entire community, this entire support network has accomplished something monumental and amazing. Most of you probably already heard this, but for those of you that haven't, last Thursday, June 30th, the judge finally handed out the decision in the Adnan Syed case in Baltimore. I was out in the backyard shoveling rocks when I got the message. And if you've never seen a six foot one, 270 pound man crying and shoveling rocks at the same time, you're really missing out. 
because that's exactly what was happening when I found out that Anand Syed's conviction has been thrown out by Judge Welch. And it was such an incredible, very busy, but incredible week and weekend. As the decision in Anand's case came in on the eve of Kerry Max Cook's actual innocence hearing that happened on Friday, July 1st. So in today's episode, I want to cover both of those items. But I'll tell you up front, my explanation of what happened in both of these cases is going to be a little shorter than I had planned. I've actually spent two long days going through all the audio from the Kerry Max Cook hearing, intending to give you an episode with all the sound bites and sound clips so you can hear for yourself what really went on that day. But in the course of going through Kerry Max Cook's case, I found some new information that led me down a different path. And that's what we're going to end the show with today. But before we get to that, I want to start off by explaining what happened in the judge's ruling in the Adnan Syed case. I don't know if any of you believe in prophetic dreams. I know that our audience spans worldwide through hundreds of different cultures and faiths and races, and I respect everyone's point of view. But something happened way back at the end of January, right before Adnan's post-conviction relief hearing, that caused me to change my mind, get online, and buy a plane ticket and fly out for the hearing. I haven't gone back and listened, but I believe I spoke about this in episode 134, where I explained what went on in the post-conviction relief hearing. But what had happened is I had made up my mind I wasn't going to make the trip. I had too much going on that week, and as a matter of fact, the day the hearing began was actually my birthday. So I really was planning on staying home with my family that week. But on the Thursday night before the hearing, I had a dream. And by my personal beliefs, I believe in prophetic dreams. Whether it's through the hand of God or whatever you believe, I believe that sometimes our psyches in our minds, in our dreams, will show us things that we can't always see when we're awake. And I know that might sound crazy to some of you, but that's just me. So on the night before this, I went to bed and I had this very, very vivid dream. I dreamt that I was sitting in a room and Robbie Ashaudry was there and Susan Simpson was there and Colin Miller and Justin Brown and Anand walked into the room. And everybody was excited. People were crying and hugging. We were all excited because Adnan had gotten out of prison. And in this dream, I gave Robbie a hug. And she was saying, we won, we won, we won. And there were tears flowing down both of our faces. And I looked at Rabia and said, see, I told you, Asia didn't even matter. The next morning, of course, I immediately texted Robbie and told her about the dream. And she agreed with me that I just had to be there. Neither one of us really knew why. I definitely didn't know why, and I'll tell you right now, and I want to make sure this is clear, that I'm not taking any credit for what happened in this post-conviction relief hearing. I was there as support and to be able to report on the hearing, to inform all of you as to what was happening. But I just felt that I had to be there. So then here we are, five months later, and the judge gives his ruling. And surprisingly, at least for me, the reason that Adnan's conviction was thrown out was not based on Asia. In fact, the judge denied the ineffective assistance of counsel claim on Asia. The conviction was actually thrown out based on the ineffective assistance of counsel claims because Christina Gutierrez failed to cross-examine the cell phone expert at the trial. And this all stems from the discovery by Susan Simpson of the Undisclosed Podcast. Remember, she is the one. And let me tell you, this is what is so amazing about what's happening here. 
This is the power of real people, ordinary people like you and me. Susan Simpson is a lawyer, but she was a fan of Serial. She liked the Serial podcast. She was really into it and really interested. And so she started blogging about the case. Rabia was reading her blogs, and Colin Miller was doing the same thing. And Rabia reached out to both of them to start the Undisclosed podcast. So we all know Rabia, Susan, and Colin as the stars of the Undisclosed podcast. But just a year and a half ago, they were just normal people just like you and me. Ordinary people who have done extraordinary things that have made a difference, made an impact in a human being's life, made a difference in this world. They're helping to change what is going to happen with our criminal justice system as we move forward. And so are each and every one of you. You may think that just because you haven't been called upon to do any specific task with any of these cases yet, that you don't matter. But it's simply not true. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change the world. It is what is going to change our criminal justice system. We have created a voice that is millions of people strong. And your voice has finally helped cause prosecutors from around this country to have to sit up and listen to what we have to say, because we're not giving them any other choice. So while I don't want to take any personal accolades for what happened, because literally I had very little, if anything, to do with the ruling in Adnan's case, that isn't the area of these cases that I focus on, not the legal side of it, but the investigative side of it. So that work should become very important as we move forward. But while I don't want to take those accolades personally, I think that we, as a whole, all of us can hang our hats on the fact that all of us together, collectively, united, did make a difference. Now, I'm not going to take up too much time in today's episode explaining the ruling. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, as I said, Scheduling conflicts and new information and the other cases have all kind of restricted the amount of time I have to work on this today. And secondly, the Undisclosed podcast dropped an episode on Monday titled Vacated, and they do a really, really good job of explaining in detail what the ruling means. So I'm sure most of you have already heard that, but if you haven't, go download the Vacated episode of the Undisclosed podcast. You have Susan, Colin, and Rabia all on there explaining everything. And John Cryer is moderating. And so he's asking the questions that ordinary people like those of us that aren't real familiar with the legal process would be asking. But I will go ahead and sum things up in kind of a nutshell as far as the best I understand what's happened. So like I said, the judge denied the ineffective assistance of counsel grounds based on the Asia alibi. And so that seems bad for us. But the reality of it is it's good for us because of the reason he denied it. The judge denied the Asia claim because after he looked at the record, he's acknowledged that Jay Wilde's testimony is so crazy and so all over the place, and it literally makes no sense, and it doesn't line up with the prosecution's narrative at all. He even responded to the state's claim that if the 236 call didn't work because of Asia, they could always move it back to a 315 come and get me call. But the judge goes into detail as to why that wouldn't work. It doesn't work with the phone records. And so in a nutshell, basically what he's saying is because Jay's testimony is all over the place and he contradicts himself and he contradicts the state's narrative so much that in his mind from reading the record, essentially he's saying 
that no jury would have believed Jay. Almost like that's not the reason that he was convicted. It couldn't be. It's so ridiculous. They couldn't have believed Jay. And so therefore, the Asia alibi doesn't matter because the state never effectively proved where Adon was at or what he was supposed to be doing during the time that he was with Asia. And he also denied the Brady violation claim regarding the fax cover sheet on the cell phone records. It's complicated. And you have to listen to Undisclosed to fully understand it. But the nuts and bolts are that there was a copy of that fax cover sheet in the defense's files. It was actually attached to a different set of phone records, not the set of phone records they used to track Adnan's location throughout the day. But because it was in her records, from my understanding, that's why the judge denied the Brady violation. But the ground that he granted, the reason he vacated the conviction, was due to ineffective assistance of counsel. Because of that fax cover sheet... And because the state argued that Gutierrez did have it in their possession and they didn't withhold it, they almost shot themselves in the foot. We talked about this months ago, that the state had positioned themselves to either say Gutierrez didn't have the fax cover sheet, and that's Brady, or she did have the cover sheet, and that's ineffective assistance of counsel, because she never should have allowed that evidence in. Well, the judge ruled that the major factor that convicted Adnan was Jay's testimony that they were burying the body in Leakin Park in the 7 o'clock hour and that they were able to corroborate that testimony with those incoming pings in the 7 o'clock hour that pinged a tower near Leakin Park. Basically, he said that was the most damning evidence. That was what convicted him. And Gutierrez never should have allowed that testimony in, or at the very least, she should have cross-examined the cell phone expert with that fax cover sheet to impeach the testimony. So on those grounds, as of right now, Adnan Syed is no longer a convicted murderer. And he has once again moved back in the position of being innocent until proven guilty. So the big question now is, what's going to happen next? Well, right now, Adnan's conviction has been vacated. So the first thing you need to understand is the state has a right to appeal that. And the appellate process can be quite confusing, so again, I'll direct you to the undisclosed episode to get the full legal explanation of that. Colin Miller does a great job of breaking that down on the show. But in layman's terms, my opinion from what I understand is that the odds of this ruling getting overturned on appeal is pretty much slim to none. The judge did a very good job of defending his ruling in the decision that he wrote. And it would be really hard, I think, for the state to make a compelling argument to have it overturned. So assuming that it's not overturned and the ruling stands, Adnan is now back to post-indictment phase. So that means if you imagine that this was a brand new crime, and you got arrested, put you before the grand jury, and you got indicted, and you're sitting in the county jail awaiting trial, that's where Adnan is at at this point. So the first question that comes up is, can Adnan get bail? It's possible. I'm sure that Justin Brown is going to work towards this, and he's going to be filing motions to get bail. So that, first of all, is the first thing that I'm really hoping happens, is that bail is granted, and we can get Adnan out of that prison. And at least while this process plays out, he can wait from his own home and not in a prison cell. But there's no guarantee of that, but that's the goal. Secondly, the question is, where do we go from here? Well, the state basically has three options. They can either try Adnan again. That's what he was granted. The conviction was vacated, so he's granted a new trial. So the state could decide to go ahead and go forward with a new trial. My personal opinion, we're never going to see this happen. 
I actually hope that we do. I would love for us to go through a new trial. Number one, so Adnan can actually be fully acquitted and found innocent of this. And also there's some people that I would really like to have on the witness stand. But that's one of their options is a new trial. Another option they have is to drop the charges. Basically, they have the option to throw in the towel and say, okay, we agree, we admit that we've got the wrong guy, and we're dropping the charges and throwing it out. I think the likelihood of that happening is very, very, very slim. It's the right thing to happen, and it's what should happen, but I think it is very, very unlikely that the state would be willing to do that, especially when you consider how hard they've been fighting this conviction from being overturned. But we can always hope for that, and that would be the best possible outcome. Because that would also open the case back up. It basically would become a brand new case, and it could be reinvestigated. And if there's another killer out there, the police could find them, charge them, and try them. And then we have the third option, which in my opinion is probably the most likely. And you can absolutely take that with a grain of salt because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a lawyer, uh, but just based on the research that I've done and the other cases I've worked I think the most likely scenario is that after a period of appeals in the state fighting, kicking, and screaming for as long as they possibly can, when they finally get backed into a corner where they have to either try him or let him go, that they'll offer a non Alford plea. And for those of you that don't remember what an Alford plea is, that's where the state would offer a plea deal where a non pleads no contest. He does not have to admit guilt, but basically usually it says they have to acknowledge that they could have been convicted if they went to another trial. And then part of the deal is their sentence for pleading no contest would be basically for time served. So that would be the end of it. Plead no contest, you're sentenced to time served, which means you've already served your sentence, and you go home and everything is over with. There's good and bad to that. The good is it's over. You don't have to worry about it again. You can never be tried for this offense again, and you get to go home, and you're done. The negative sides of it are, one, you'll then spend the rest of your life as a convicted murderer. Any background check that's ever done on you for a job or anything will show that you were convicted of murder. And that's a really hard thing to live with. It's something that Carrie Max Cook has been living with for 20 years. And the other negative side of an Alford plea is that the case is closed. The record would reflect that someone was arrested, they were convicted, they served their sentence, and then they got out and went home which means they will not reopen the investigation. They will not look for the person that actually killed Heyman Lee. There'll be no justice for her or for her family. It's basically a cop-out for the state. Now, that being said, if I was in Adnan's shoes, that would be a very difficult decision to make. And I think Robbie has gone on the record several times saying that if that's an offer, that she would definitely suggest and recommend to Adnan that he take the deal. Because it's not just him, it's his family, it's everybody around him that just want him to come home. Now, I don't know what Adnan would choose. I know that the burden should not be on him to make sure that the real killer is actually caught. As much as we all want to see that happen, I don't believe it is Adnan's responsibility to make sure that it does. He has himself and a family to think about. And if he gets the opportunity to go home, I would hope that he would take that opportunity and not risk spending more years awaiting trial and then always having the risk at trial of being convicted again. Because as we all know, juries are fallible and they're unpredictable. We've seen it in case after case after case. But with all that being said, and we certainly do have a long road to hoe in Anand's case as we move forward. But right now, I think it's time to just step back for a minute, take a deep breath, and celebrate the fact that the man that we've been fighting for has finally found victory 
in some form of justice, and he is no longer a convicted murderer. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For the next segment in this episode, I want to break down for you what happened in Carrie Max Cook's actual innocence hearing that occurred on July 1st. That's last Friday. Now, like I mentioned at the onset of the show, I kind of had to throw the baby out with the bathwater with this week's episode. I'd planned on a solid hour about the hearing. I had all these sound clips, but a couple of things are going on that I wanted to tell you guys about just so you understand what's happening. First of all, and by the time you've heard this, it's already been over, but somehow I was nominated and became a finalist to receive the Podcaster of the Year Award in my category at the podcast movement in Chicago this week. I was extremely flattered that I was nominated and then later found out I was a finalist, so I have to spend Wednesday through Friday this week in Chicago at the podcast movement, which is pretty awesome and something I wanted to go to anyway. But they had already asked me to speak at the conference on Thursday, and Wednesday night is the award ceremony. So it's a pretty cool thing, and I'm really flattered by all of it, but it's created a bit of a scheduling issue for me this week. Because of the podcast movement, I've only had two days to put this week's episode together, which means I was working 16, 17, 18-hour days the last two days, including July 4th on Monday, to get all of this together. It's right now about 11 o'clock at night on Tuesday when I'm recording this, and it was about 9 o'clock tonight when I discovered something that caught my attention in the Carrie Max Cooks case. And that's what I'm going to discuss in the third segment. So I will have another episode coming up sometime soon, maybe a bonus episode, where I'm going to play a lot of these audio clips, or I may even put up the entire recording from the actual Innocence hearing up as a bonus episode for anyone who wants to listen to it. And by the way, I want to throw a huge shout-out to my man Wade. Wade is a listener in the Truth and Justice Army, and since I couldn't be at the hearing, he volunteered to go to the hearing and get the recording for me. He did an awesome job. He did some editing work for me and sent it all over. So thank you, Wade, so much for your time and effort. But for right now, I want to break down what happened in this hearing. So the way this worked was back at the April hearing, you'll remember that Kerry Cook's attorney signed the deal with with the Smith County DA's office. As part of that deal, the state agreed to set aside Kerry's conviction based on the due process violation because James Mayfield has finally admitted that he's been lying for 40 years in all the prior proceedings. The other part of the deal was the actual innocence claim would be heard in a one-day hearing with no witnesses. Both sides would submit all of their evidence to the judge for his review, and then they would have a chance to give oral arguments before the judge. That's what happened this past Friday. It was an extremely condensed hearing. Each side was only given one hour to make their arguments. 
But after listening to the audio and speaking with several listeners and Carrie and his wife and his niece that were all at the hearing, the judge seemed to have done a really, really good job of reviewing the record. As a matter of fact, after listening to the audio, I would say that he knew the case better than Carrie's attorney, which is no insult to Carrie's attorney. He's only been on the case for about two weeks, and the Smith County DA's office was pulling some shenanigans that were taking up a lot of his time during those two weeks where instead of investigating the actual case, he was having to investigate the DA's office. But the point here is that the judge really did seem to do a good job of researching and understanding the case. During the arguments, the judge was allowed to ask questions of either side, and he was very clear about the items that he wanted to see resolved. The judge told both sides that the way he sees it, actual innocence rests on three issues. Remember, now that we're in the habeas phase, the burden of proof is actually on Kerry's side. It's not in the states like in a normal trial. So the judge says he sees there's three pieces of inculpatory evidence, that's evidence that points towards Kerry's guilt, that he's going to need to see addressed. The three items were the fact that Kerry's fingerprint was found on Linda Jo Edward, the victim's, sliding glass door. The second item was a former reserve deputy sheriff named Robert Wickham, who claimed that during the middle of the 1978 trial, that while in an elevator, Kerry Cook confessed to him. And the third item is the testimony of Paula Rudolph. That was Linda's roommate. Remember, Paula Rudolph, at all three trials, identified Carrie Max Cook as the man that she saw in the apartment the night Linda was murdered. So those were the three items. That's what it boiled down to for the judge. So I want to walk through with you how the state and the defense addressed these three items. First, we have the fingerprint. Carrie Max Cook's fingerprint was indeed found on the patio door of Linda Jo Edwards' apartment. Now, if you remember from previous episodes, at the first trial, the detective that took the fingerprints actually testified that you could date fingerprints. He told the jury that those fingerprints were 12 hours old, meaning he could put Carrie Max Cook in the apartment at the exact time of the murder. And of course, you and I all know that that's bullshit, and that testimony was later thrown out in later trials, but the fact that that fingerprint was there still remains. And that's literally the only piece of evidence that puts Carrie Max Cook in that apartment. None of his DNA was found, none of his hairs were found, no other fingerprints, nothing. Now, the state's argument was that Carrie Max Cook had told a reporter back in 1977 or 78 that he had never met Linda and had never been in her apartment before. So with that being the case, that must mean that he left that fingerprint there when he was in the apartment murdering her. That's their claim. Now, the fact of the matter is, Carrie did originally deny knowing Linda or ever being in her apartment. He talks about it a lot in his book, and I've spoken with him personally about it. In the way he put it, he was a scared kid. He was like 21 years old. They were questioning him about a murder, and his first reaction was to say that he didn't know her and he'd never been there before. Along with that, his father had told him not to tell them that he had been in the apartment. So the state did have that going for them. But the fact is that there is direct evidence to the contrary. Cook later finally admitted that he had been in the apartment before. A few days before the murder, he said that he had seen Linda Jo Edwards through her patio window. The curtains were open, and she was nude, fondling herself or something in the apartment. And then a few days after that, he had met her at the pool, and he had went back to her apartment with her, and they had made out. And she had even left hickeys on his neck. So if that's true, that would explain why the fingerprint was there. And Kerry actually does, and the police have had, and the prosecution's office has had, corroboration to that story for 40 years. Kerry's roommate had two nephews, a guy named Rodney Dykes and his brother Randy Dykes. 
One of them was 12 at the time of the murder, and one was 18. Both of them gave statements to the police and testified at the grand jury that before the murder had occurred, that Carrie had told them that he had looked through the window one day and saw Linda naked in the apartment. And he told them, and again, this is before the murder occurred, that the hickeys that he had on his neck actually came from Linda, that he had met her at the pool, and he'd went back to her apartment with her, and they had made out. So this completely corroborated Carrie's story all the way back in 1977. The problem is, remember I've told you so many times in Smith County that the prosecutors are protected by the judges. They're able to make very compelling cases to juries because they file motions to exclude evidence, and the judge grants it, so the defense can't bring in their evidence that would prove their case. Well, that was the case with the statements and the grand jury testimony of Rodney and Randy Dykes. Like I said, they had given this story to the police and through the grand jury. But at trial, the judge ruled that this was hearsay, and it couldn't come in. They wouldn't allow either one of them to testify to the fact that Carrie had told them that he had been in there, that he'd showed him the hickeys on his neck, proving that he had actually been in Linda Joe Edwards' apartment explaining the fingerprint. But at the same time, what the judge did allow was for Randy and Rodney to testify that Carrie had been peeping in the window and saw Linda naked in the apartment. For some reason, them saying that Carrie had told them that he had walked by and saw Linda nude in the apartment wasn't hearsay. They allowed that in, but they wouldn't allow the other half of the statement that Carrie had told them that he had actually been in the apartment with her. Now, this new judge, who's a visiting judge, by the way, he's not from Smith County, in the actual innocence hearing, everyone that was there told me that he seemed to be very fair. And this is one of the cases where I would absolutely agree with that. This judge did allow the other half of that statement to come into evidence. So that's something that he can consider in his ruling. And also note that the prosecution still to this day at that hearing was fighting this evidence coming in and was still arguing with the judge about him allowing it in, which just goes to show you the mentality of the Smith County DA's office. They're supposedly seeking the truth, but they don't want to allow a statement in that helps clear up and paint a picture of exactly what happened back then. So from listening to the audio of the hearing, I got the impression that the judge really doesn't have a problem with the fingerprint. I at least think that he has the legal basis to make the argument that the fingerprint evidence is not enough to convict. Now, the second item is this confession with this reserve deputy, Robert Wickham. This is honestly the most difficult part, I think, for the defense, because it's going to come down to a judgment call. Remember, no one's testifying. The judge is just looking at the record, and all he has to look at is a statement by a law enforcement officer saying that Carrie confessed to him. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think the judge was buying it. In fact, he even said as much during the defense's closing argument. He straight up said that it would seem crazy to him, and I'm paraphrasing, that while Cook was in trial, fighting for his life, claiming his innocence, that he would then get into an elevator, which, by the way, I'm told it was a 17-second elevator ride, with an officer of the court and just decide out of the blue, hey, I want to confess to you. There was also a lot of shadiness surrounding Wickham. He never told anyone that this happened back in 78. It wasn't until years later, I believe right before the 1992 trial, when a friend of his named Glenn Miller said that Wickham had told him that all the way back in 1978. So the question was raised, if this actually happened, and it was during the course of the trial, why would Robert Wickham not have said anything back then? I mean, I'm sure you guys can understand, and I clearly understand, that the whole thing is bullshit. It never happened. It just doesn't make any sense. And like I said, the judge directly said, this doesn't make sense. But then he also said, it's a problem. It's a problem because this judge does not have the final say in Texas. 
So in Adnan's case, the judge made a ruling and it's done. And then either side has the right to appeal that ruling. But in Texas, it doesn't work that way. If my understanding is correct, the judge makes a ruling and sends that directly to the criminal court of appeals. And the criminal court of appeals has the final decision. No one has to appeal it. They make the decision whether to uphold the ruling or not. So that's what the judge was getting at, or at least that's my understanding, that he can't just put in his opinion, I didn't believe this guy, because the CCA won't accept that. He has to have a reason to not believe this guy. And I don't think it's a hurdle that's insurmountable, but I think that's definitely going to be the trickiest part about the actual innocence claim. But we'll just have to see how the judge's ruling comes down on that element. Now, the third issue that the judge cited was the testimony of Paula Rudolph. Remember, Paula Rudolph was Linda Joe Edwards' roommate. And this issue, I think, is basically dead in the water. At least it should be. I mean, Paula Rudolph initially identified the killer, the person that she saw in the apartment that night, as someone that was Mayfield's height, that had crop-cut silver hair, was wearing white tennis shorts, had a nice tan. I mean, this basically perfectly describes James Mayfield. That was Linda Joe Edwards' boyfriend. And couldn't be more opposite than Kerry Max Cook. Kerry Cook at the time was shorter. He was kind of scrawny. He had long, dark hair. He looked nothing like what was originally described. But then later at trial, Paula Rudolph identified Kerry Max Cook as the person she was certain that she saw in the apartment that night. And there's been a lot of surrounding circumstances that indicate that not only did Paula Rudolph identify someone that looked like James Mayfield, but that she in fact was telling people that it was James Mayfield she saw in that apartment that night. And some of that we've discussed before. Now the state's position is that Paula never identified Mayfield, and that they certainly never had any idea that she identified Mayfield, that it was always Carrie Max Cook. In fact, in the hearing, in the prosecution's argument, they stated that Paula Rudolph had never seen Carrie Max Cook until she by happenstance came across him in the courthouse and realized, oh my God, that's the person that was in the apartment. But the judge sniffed this out, and he asked them, hadn't he seen her in the courthouse before? Now remember, they're trying to make this argument that it was just, hey, there's a person walking in the hallway, and that was him, but that's not what happened. The judge straight up asked the prosecutor, didn't Paula see Kerry Max Cook in a hearing before that happened, where he was sitting at the defense with his counsel as the defendant? And begrudgingly, the prosecutor had to admit, well, yeah, there was this one hearing where she was there and saw him sitting there. And the judge just comes right out and says it. Well, that's a problem. She had already seen that he was the defendant before she said that he's the one she saw. It is not the way they were presenting it, as though she happened to walk across him in the hallway. So like I said, the judge seemed to have their number, and he was asking the right questions. And everyone I spoke to that was in the courthouse that day told me that the judge seemed very sympathetic towards the defense and very, very skeptical of the prosecution. He asked them a lot of tough questions during their argument. But when I was listening to all this audio this week, something jumped out at me. Something that I think the defense missed, and I hope they get it back into the record later. So remember, the state's claim is that not only did they not know that Paula had identified James Mayfield, but that it never happened, that she wasn't telling anyone that it was James Mayfield. Well, one of the other pieces of audio I was listening to was the actual recorded interview that occurred in April with James Mayfield when he was granted immunity. Carrie's attorney was questioning Mayfield, and he was asking him about how things were going right after the murder. And he was talking about the fact that Paula Rudolph was actually Mayfield's friend. They worked together. Mayfield was actually the one who set Linda Jo Edwards up with Paula to stay in her apartment. You see, Mayfield had left his wife and moved into an apartment with Linda. He told her they were going to get married. And then four days later, he had a change of heart 
and moved back in with his wife, who, by the way, was meeting with a lawyer about filing for divorce at the time. So Linda couldn't afford the rent at this place and had to leave the apartment. It was Mayfield that set her up with Paula Rudolph. So Paula Rudolph is someone he works with, he's friends with, he and his wife had been over to her house for dinner before, and Carrie's attorneys were asking him what the relationship was like with Paula after the murder occurred, and he said that he never saw Paula again. He doesn't know what happened to her. She stopped coming to work, they didn't talk, she had just completely exiled herself from him. So in the exchange you're about to hear, Carrie's attorney Gary is asking James Mayfield if maybe this is the reason that she was avoiding him. But isn't the reason why nobody wanted to tell you anything about Paula was that Paula was telling people that she saw you in the apartment that night. I, I, You're aware of that, aren't you? I was I was aware of that later, yes. Okay. I was told that uh, Paula had said that, yes. This is significant, and I'm worried that it was something that was missed by the defense. What you just heard was James Mayfield admitting that he knew that Paula Rudolph had identified him, and that he thinks that's part of the reason why she wasn't speaking to him. So if he himself knew that she had identified him, that's a pretty good indication that she had indeed identified him. And throughout the interview, he consistently says that the only way he knew anything about the case was through his lawyer and the prosecutor. And specifically, by the time they got to the 92 trial, it was from his attorney, Buck Files, who was a former Smith County ADA, and David Dobbs. He says on several occasions that Dobbs was such a great guy. Here's a quick example of what I'm talking about. I just did what I was told. I mean, I put all of my trust in Mr. Files and Mr. Dobbs, and I just did what I was told. So the state can argue all they want that Linda never made that statement and that they didn't know about it. But James Mayfield knew she had identified him. And the only place where he was getting information was either through the district attorney's office or from his lawyer. In my opinion, this is clear and convincing proof that not only had Paula Rudolph identified him as the one in the apartment that night, but furthermore, that the district attorney's office knew it. Now, aside from these three issues and that short hearing, there were a lot of other shenanigans going on. And like I said, I'll do another episode at some point where I'll really get into it and maybe even play the full audio. But one that I found really noteworthy is if you remember way back when I originally started talking about Carrie's case, there was the man that Carrie was hanging out with the night of the murder, a guy named Robert Hahn. He was the guy that had testified that Carrie was in his apartment, they had a sexual encounter, they were watching that movie, and that Carrie had gotten aroused over a scene with a cat being mutilated. But then later it was discovered that Hahn had actually testified to the grand jury that they didn't actually have a sexual encounter and that Carrie wasn't paying any attention to the movie. And Hahn also testified about the time he dropped Carrie Max Cook off. So he had originally testified that Carrie was at his house, they were hanging out, the movie was on. After the movie was over, they drove to go get cigarettes. I think they went to a couple of different convenience stores. And then Hahn dropped Carrie back at the apartment at about 1230 now, Paul Rudolph testified that it was between 12.30, 12.35, 12.40 when she came home and saw the man standing in Linda's room, the man in the white tennis shorts. Well, Hahn had also testified that Carrie Cook was not wearing white tennis shorts. So in order for the state's impossible narrative and timeline to work, somehow in a matter of minutes, and we're talking maybe five minutes, ten at the tops, after Carrie got dropped off, he would have had to walk across the complex to his apartment, change into some white shorts that he doesn't actually own, go back across the complex, 
into Linda Jo Edwards' apartment, brutally murder her, mutilate her body, stage the crime scene, and be ready to walk out the door when Paul Rudolph came home. And he was supposed to do all of this in five minutes, which obviously is impossible. Well, at a later trial, Robert Hone's testimony was completely thrown out. This is after it was discovered that David Dobbs was hiding the grand jury testimony pages where Hone had given opposite testimony regarding the encounter and Carrie's reaction to the movie. Hone had since passed away, and his previous testimony was stricken from the record, never to be brought up again. Well, the state in this hearing tried to bring it back in, and the judge stopped them and said his testimony is not admissible, it's not part of this, it's not part of the record, it was stricken. And so the spin the prosecutors put on this was that they're actually arguing from Sergeant Eddie Clark's testimony. You've heard that name before. He's the one that ordered Kenny Snow's DNA to be destroyed illegally. And he was also an investigator in this case. And the state was trying to make the argument that Carrie had actually been dropped off at midnight and not 1230. And the judge is telling them all of this testimony isn't admissible. And the state was arguing that this is in the record. Sergeant Eddie Clark testified to this. And the judge even questioned him. So wait, you're telling me that Sergeant Clark testified that they were watching a movie in their apartment? And he says, no, no, he was testifying back in, I believe it was the 94 trial, that he had checked when the movie was on and did a drive test to see how long it would take to go to these convenience stores, get the cigarettes, and get back, and that they'd be back by midnight. Well, the problem is, and I hope the judge realizes this, unless I've missed something, I went through that old testimony when Sergeant Eddie Clark testified about this drive test and all this stuff that he did. And I didn't see anywhere in that testimony where Sergeant Clark ever testified that Kerry Cook was dropped off at midnight. From the best I can see, the prosecution just literally made this fact up. So again, we're relying on the fact that the judge is trying to be fair and is reading all the documents and is familiarizing himself with the record, and that'll make the right call. Now, all in all, from what I'm told from everyone that was there that I spoke to, the judge seemed fair. Again, he seemed much more sympathetic towards Kerry's side and much more skeptical towards the state side. So what's going to happen next is the judge has until August 1st. So we're talking about a couple of weeks, less than a month to make his ruling. Once he makes that ruling, that will be sent up to the CCA for them to make the final decision. So we're kind of in a holding pattern until then. But in the meantime, when I was going through all of these old documents, and I was listening to all this audio, including the nearly three-hour interview with James Mayfield, something caught my attention. Over the last year and a half, I've become... I guess, a journalist of sorts. And that has always been my role with the Carrie Max Cook case. Like I told you a few weeks ago, Cook's case is not our case. It's just a case that we're reporting on because I think it's an important case to follow. And also it directly relates to our cases, which are the Kenny Snow and the Edward Ates case, because they're all out of Smith County and involve the same people. But when going through all this information, something jumped out at me that changed everything. After this last break to hear from our sponsors, I want to begin our new investigation into the murder of Linda Jo Edwards. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When I was listening to all of the audio that's been provided to me, James Mayfield's 2016 interview, the audio from the July 1st hearing, and the interviews after the hearing, and I was looking through some old documents, I started to really, for the first time, really consider this crime scene. I got a hold of some of the old records, the police reports, the autopsy report, and I compared that with the new evidence of Mayfield's interview. And there it was, staring me right in the face. Everyone has had this wrong for 40 years. First, the police put blinders on and went after Carrie Max Cook without looking at anyone else. And then we have all the circumstances surrounding James Mayfield, including his DNA found on the scene, and blinders have been put on again, and the assumption was made that Mayfield is the one that killed Linda Joe Edwards. For starters, let me explain to you why people believe that. For 40 years, Mayfield has claimed that he had not had a sexual relationship with Linda Jo Edwards for about three weeks before her murder. That's what he said in the 1978 trial when Carrie was sentenced to death row. That's what he said in the 92 trial where a mistrial was declared. And that's what he said in the 94 trial when Cook was again sentenced to death row. That's what he said in every deposition, every statement for these entire 40 years. It was in 1999 when Carrie Max Cook was finally offered the Alford plea and his fear of going back to prison was finally over. Just a few months after that is when the state got the results from the DNA test that showed that the semen that was present in the panties of the victim on the crime scene, just a couple feet from her body, belonged to James Mayfield. And at a broad glance, that looks like James Mayfield was the killer. I mean, he had motive. And given his 2016 interview, his motive becomes even clearer. As I've said before, Mayfield was having an affair with Linda Jo Edwards. He'd left his wife and moved into an apartment with her. His wife was filing for divorce, and he left Linda and went back to his wife. Linda then attempted suicide, and Mayfield is the one who actually took her to the hospital. And what we found out in this 2016 interview is that Mayfield was actually seeing a counselor. After the suicide attempt, he'd lost his job. He was a dean at the local college, and he was in charge of the library. So because of his affair with Linda Jo Edwards, he had lost his career, and he was losing his wife. And he said he was seeing the counselor because he had a problem. He couldn't resist Linda. He couldn't just be friends with her. As he said several times in the interview, every time he was with Linda, it led to sex. Every time. And the counselor had told him that he needed to completely stay away from Linda Jo Edwards. But nearly 40 years later, this year, he finally admitted that on the day before Linda Jo Edwards' murder, which happened to be James Mayfield's birthday, that he had gone over to Paula Rudolph's apartment where she was staying. Linda had several gifts for him, and they had sex. Now, the first assumption is that he finally told the truth because he had immunity. 
But to be honest, it was in his best interest to say that they had sex. And I believe that they did. And that's because once it was proven that his semen was in those panties, he needed a way to explain that. And my thought all along has been, he actually had had sex with her the night of the murder. And he just said it was the day before. And there was also more that James Mayfield revealed in this interview this year. He said that he did see Linda Jo Edwards on the day of the murder. Four times, in fact. He said that on the day of the murder, Linda came to his work. He said something about her coming to water his plants. He then left work and went to Dairy Queen with Linda so they could talk. After they spoke, he agreed that from the way it sounded after work, James is going to pick her up and take her out to look at a new apartment. Remember, she was just staying with Paula Rudolph temporarily. So he took her out to look at an apartment, which even by his own admission, she couldn't afford. This was obviously just an excuse for Linda to be close to him again. He eventually had to leave Linda to go meet his wife at a park where they were training their dog. And then when he and his wife arrived home, Linda Edwards was waiting for them at his house. He said that she was having car trouble and he used to work on cars, so she wanted him to look at it. So with all this new information, we start to see the motive for James Mayfield. He had already lost his job and he was losing his wife, but his wife had taken him back. But that was under the pretense that his relationship with Linda Jo Edwards was over. But he had screwed up the day before. He met Linda again and he had sex with her. For him, this was just a guy, well, being a pig. He just wanted to have one more sexual encounter with his mistress. But I think for Linda, this reignited a flame in her. Remember, she was emotionally unstable. She had attempted suicide because of their breakup just three weeks before. And when Mayfield went to her apartment and reignited that relationship, I believe that Linda thought things were going to come back to normal, that her and Mayfield were going to be together. Well, for Mayfield, he didn't want that. He just wanted a quickie, so to speak. And now the next day, she's following him around all over town, even including coming to his house. So I agree, this absolutely shows motive for Mayfield. The only thing that he has left is his wife, and he wasn't about to throw his marriage away for Linda Jo Edwards. Here's a clip of Mayfield explaining this in his own words. So after you had sex with her on your birthday, what did you think the status of saving your marriage was? Well, um, I knew I, I, I knew I'd, I was weak. I, I knew that my um, marriage uh, is very important. I mean. My wife, had, my wife and I had been together forever, and uh, that was the most important thing. Saving your marriage was the most important thing to you and your wife. Yes. I mean, Linda came second. Okay. My wife came first. So if you factor in this motive, and you add the presence of Mayfield's DNA at the crime scene, and you add to that the fact that Paula Rudolph seemingly at the very beginning on the night of the murder, believed it was Mayfield that she saw in the apartment, it seems like case closed. James Mayfield killed Linda Joe Edwards. But after really looking at the crime scene and examining the autopsy reports and the police reports and the evidence reports, I'm not so sure it was James Mayfield that killed Linda Joe Edwards. Let's first look at the DNA evidence. When I read the autopsy report, I found that when they tested Linda, basically the 1978 version of a rape kit, they found no traces of spermatozoa in her vagina. Which is odd because one of the indictments for Carrie Max Cook was that Linda Jo Edwards was raped. But from what I can see from the actual medical report, she was not raped. 
I don't think she'd even recently had sex, meaning in the hours or minutes before her murder. But we have James Mayfield's semen on her underwear. So I took a little closer look at that. The semen on the underwear were found on the inside crotch of these panties. And the panties were found right next to Linda's body. But there's no semen inside of her. Now what I'm about to say is kind of graphic and a little gross. So I apologize for that. But it's necessary for what I'm doing here. If James Mayfield's 2016 statement that he gave under the promise of immunity is true, and he had actually had sex with Linda Jo Edwards the day before the murder, and that was the last time, the semen stain on the inside of the underwear makes sense. I don't know how to put this nicely, so I'm just going to say it. When there has been sex, and there is semen in the vagina, that semen will tend to drain out throughout the course of the next day especially within, say, 12 to 24 hours of the sexual encounter. So it actually makes perfect sense that that semen stain was on the inside of Linda Jo Edwards' panties. If you run this scenario through your mind, they have sex on the day before. The next morning, she gets up, takes a shower, gets dressed, puts on clean underwear. Throughout the morning hours of that day, there's some drainage that ends up on her panties. As the day goes on, the drainage stops. And remember, she was killed around midnight that day. So that would create a perfect recipe for there to be no sperm found inside of her, but for there to be sperm on the inside of her underwear. Now let's look at the forensics of the underwear. They were found right next to her body, but they had been cut off. Not pulled off, not yanked off, not gently taken off. They were cut off. And I believe that they were cut off post-mortem. So based on the location of the stain, the only scenario that would make sense as far as a sexual assault or sex with Mayfield to happen that night would mean that they had had sex, she then put her panties back on, then he killed her, and then he cut the panties back off, and somehow did this without any semen being found inside of her. So I don't think that's what happened. Now we move on from that to the actual murder. Linda Jo Edwards was bashed over the head with a plaster of Paris statue, and it appears she was hit a couple of times according to the autopsy. Now these blows to the head were not enough to kill her, but they were certainly enough to subdue her maybe even knock her unconscious. That statue came from just inside of her door. Now Mayfield testified that it was always a problem that Linda would always leave doors unlocked and blinds open. So as we're breaking down this crime scene, it looks as though somebody came in her sliding glass door, grabbed the statue that was right there, and went right up to Linda and started bashing her in the head with the statue. Once Linda was subdued, the assailant took a knife, which I believe came from her own kitchen, and stabbed her multiple times. The murder weapons included a knife and a pair of scissors. Again, both of which I believe came from that apartment. Linda was stabbed in the back. She was stabbed in the neck, which punctured her jugular and her carotid. There were stab wounds to her vagina, on her pelvis, her abdomen. These were the causes of death. The puncture wound to her jugular and carotid artery. There was a puncture wound to her liver. And there was puncture wounds into her lungs. But there was a lot more than just the penetrating wounds that killed her. The killer sliced Linda's face. If I'm reading the autopsy report correctly, the killer took the knife and sliced both sides of Linda's mouth. And again, I apologize for the graphic nature of this, but it's important for you to understand how this went down. There were stabs to her breasts, and her vaginal area was mutilated. And I believe that was with the scissors. So we have multiple blunt force wounds to the head with the statue. The statue was broken. There were chunks of plaster found in her head. She was stabbed in the face, the neck, her lips were sliced open, stabbed in the breasts, the abdomen, 
stabbed in the vagina and in the anus area. Her body was mutilated. And so I began to look at these wounds and started to compare them with the motives that we've established for James Mayfield. And something wasn't adding up. To me, and as I've said before, I'm not an expert, but I have studied a lot of criminal behavior. And in my non-expert opinion, everything about this murder shows rage and hatred and revenge, which does not fit with James Mayfield's motive. I believe James Mayfield loved Linda Jo Edwards. He couldn't stay away from her. I mean, the man is a horrible human being, but I don't believe the emotions he would be feeling would be rage and hatred and revenge. Put yourself in the position of James Mayfield. You do not want to lose your marriage, and this woman is threatening to cost you your marriage. But at the same time, I feel like there would be conflict there. Because there's a big part of you that does want to be with Linda Jo Edwards. That's why you left your wife for her in the first place. That's why he couldn't stay away from her the day before the murder. That's why he drove her around to look at apartments and took her to Dairy Queen on the day of the murder. Because there was a part of him that wanted to be with her. But then there was the other part of him that didn't want to lose his marriage. So if James Mayfield indeed saw Linda as a threat to his marriage, he was afraid that because of the encounter he had had with her the day before, and the time he spent with her on the day of the murder, that she may not go away. And he decided that the only way out was to kill her. Would he have killed her in this way? James Mayfield was in his 40s. He was very intelligent. He was a dean at the college. I would expect from someone like James Mayfield to see an organized murder, a planned murder. Remember, in order for him to do this, he would have had to left his house at midnight with his wife at home, snuck into her apartment, and killed her. Now, this is a woman who had just attempted suicide. I can think of a million ways that you could murder someone, and I know that sounds horrible to say, but that's just the mindset that I have to put myself in to think through these crime scenes. But I could think of a million ways that you could murder someone and make it look like an accident or a suicide. But that's not what we see here. I see a crime of passion, a crime of rage, an unplanned, disorganized attack from a killer that was motivated by rage and revenge. This killing was very personal, but it doesn't fit the profile of a man that's getting rid of a woman who's a threat to his marriage. So I decided let's throw everything out. Let's go back to the beginning like we do in all of our other cases. Forget who the police say did it. Forget who we think did it. And just look at the evidence in the crime scene. So as we break this crime scene down, disorganized, unplanned, rage. What could be the motive of this murder? Linda Jo Edwards was not raped. There was nothing stolen from her. Someone went into that house with the intent to hurt her, and they used items from her own house to do this. The murderer, I'm assuming, came in through the patio door, which was always left unlocked. And we know that it was unlocked because Mayfield testified in his 2016 interview that Linda used to live at his house with his wife and his kids. And they used to get on to her all the time because she was always leaving all of the doors unlocked. So someone comes in that door, grabs the first thing they see that was right there next to the door, that statue, and in a fit of rage, attacks and kills Linda. So let's look at if we could be looking at a random third party. As far as we know, there were no serial killers in the area right then, and certainly none with this same M.O. And again, the elements of the crime say that it's very personal. The cutting of the mouth, the cutting of the breasts, the cutting of the vagina and anus area. I believe that whoever did this hated Linda Jo Edwards. And the source of their hate comes from her sexual areas. 
Other than the blows that killed her, all of the attacks focused on her sexual organs or parts of her body that are part of sex. Her mouth, her breasts, her vagina, her anus. This doesn't fit with me with a random third party. And Carrie Max Cook, by the way, falls into that category. Carrie did have an experience with Linda Jo Edwards, but it was a brief encounter. He had met her. He made out with her. He had bragged to a couple of his buddies about how she gave him hickeys on her neck. But it was never a relationship. Carrie never saw it as a relationship. The testimony of the Dykes boys that this was just a cool experience for Carrie, and that's as far as it went for him. He didn't have a known relationship with her. He didn't have an intimate, ongoing relationship with her. He had no emotional attachment to her. He merely had a brief encounter with her. So I don't see any way how any random third party, serial killer, or a guy like Carrie Cook, who had just had this brief encounter with her, enters that apartment full of rage and just goes straight to brutally murdering her. No sexual assault, no robbery, just a sick, disgusting, brutal murder. So if we're not looking at a random third party, and we're not looking at someone with a long-term intimate relationship with her, who could have killed Linda Jo Edwards? Well, again, let's go back to the body on the crime scene, the mutilation of the sexual organs. Who would hate Linda Jo Edwards so much and would focus their hate on the sexual parts of her body? Well, let's go back to the panties that were found next to the body. Linda's underwear had been cut off, not pulled off, not ripped off, not taken off, but cut off. I don't believe this is something that a man would do, especially a man pumped up by adrenaline and filled with rage, or a man that had had a sexual encounter with Linda before, whether it's James Mayfield or Carrie Max Cook. Their experiences with Linda included them pulling those panties off, and I think that's what we would have seen. I believe, and again I acknowledge I could be wrong about this, but I believe that we're looking for a female killer. I think that a woman in this situation would be the one to take the knife and slice the panties to rip them off her. They don't have the experience to recall on of removing the panties from another woman. This person was an autopilot. Their tool was the knife, and that's what they were going to use for everything. Then we again look at the other elements of the crime. To say that this crime was disorganized is an understatement. It's like a maniac came into that room. Someone came into that apartment with murder on their mind, but with no plan on how to carry it out. They literally grabbed the first thing they saw and began the attack. And then searched the apartment and found the knife and the scissors and continued the attack. And then post-mortem, I believe after Linda was dead, they began mutilating the sexual parts of her body. And again, I'll point out, this doesn't make sense for someone whose entire motive was just to end her life so that she couldn't continue to ruin his. Whoever killed Linda Jo Edwards did not think this plan through. And that type of murder is indicative of someone who is young. A young, inexperienced, not criminally sophisticated person. And because of the other elements of the crime, I believe a female. So with my limited experience, if I was going to just look at the evidence and create a profile for this murderer, I would say that we are looking for an unsub who is a young female who had a grudge against Linda Jo Edwards, who had a personal problem with her, who had a deep hatred for this woman, and that her hatred stems from sex. When I finished my analysis of the crime scene, I literally just sat back at my desk and stared at the ceiling for a while. It's like we were going back to square one. First, we looked at Carrie Cook, and Carrie Cook didn't fit. And then for all these years, we've looked at James Mayfield, and James Mayfield doesn't fit. Neither of them are a young female 
with a bone to pick with Linda Joe Edwards. But then I started shuffling back through some old documents. I listened to the interview with James Mayfield again, and I noticed that he was pretty calm and collected through most of this interview. But the line of questioning that seemed to concern him the most was a line of questioning when they were asking him about his daughter, Luella. Mayfield explained in his interview that just weeks before the murder, Luella had threatened to kill Linda Jo Edwards. She saw Linda Jo Edwards as the person who was breaking up her family. Because of Linda Jo Edwards, in her mind, her mother was leaving her father. Her father had lost his job. And because of that, they were going to have to move to Houston, hours away. She was about 16 years old, a high school student. Think about yourself in high school, your friends, your boyfriends or girlfriends. She was going to have to leave all of that behind. And in her mind, from what she was screaming when she was in James Mayfield's office, was that this was Linda Jo Edwards' fault and she was going to kill her. Furthermore, just days before the murder, Luella Mayfield had put on a police uniform. It was actually a cadet's uniform. But she went to Linda Jo Edwards' apartment complex, posing as a police officer and telling people that she was investigating the murder of Linda Edwards. I can't wrap my brain around why someone would do this or what she was trying to accomplish, but it's extremely disturbing to say the least. She wasn't just making idle threats. She wasn't just having childhood thoughts of killing someone who's ruined their life. She had started to take action. She was doing recon at the apartment complex and posing as a police officer. During Mayfield's interview, he was asked if Luella has any violent tendencies. This was one of the areas he got really uncomfortable. It took several minutes for Carrie's attorney to draw out of him that Luella later on had actually shot her husband with a shotgun. I don't know the details of how that happened. It's something that I'm going to look into. But it certainly shows a propensity towards violence. And deadly violence at that. The only conflict with this profile whatsoever is Paula Rudolph's identification of the man that she saw in the apartment the night of the murder. Again, she originally stated that she thought it was James Mayfield from all of the information we have. She later changed her story and said that it was Carrie Max Cook. So how could this fit with my analysis of the crime scene? Well, it could mean a number of things. As I've stated time and time again on this show when we've talked about human behavior and memory, that our brain has a tendency to fill in the gaps. Our brains don't like incomplete puzzles. It could be that the identification of James Mayfield began with Paula assuming that it was Mayfield in the apartment that night. She said that when she walked in, and she looked over and saw someone in that room, she assumed that it was James Mayfield. In her brain, that's the only person she could think of that would be in her room that time of night. So it could be that the identification of Mayfield was her brain converting that assumption into a memory. But then later she identified Carrie Cook, who doesn't even look anywhere near like James Mayfield. We've assumed all these years that that could be just manipulated testimony, that she was threatened or forced to change her testimony. And I still think that is a very high likelihood. But another possibility is that she tried to think back and recall who she actually saw in that apartment that night. And maybe she saw someone with long hair. Remember, Carrie Max Cook had longer hair down to his shoulders at that time. And in her later testimony, once it had changed and formulated to what it ended up being, she said that she couldn't identify the face. She couldn't see features. But at a glance, as a profile... Carrie Max Cook now suddenly fits the description in her mind. And that's after she saw him sitting at a table at a hearing as the defendant in the case. 
So again, our mind puts puzzles together whether we want it to or not. Assume she walked into that hearing, assuming that it still was James Mayfield that she saw in that room. Then she sees Carrie Cook on trial, and her brain can't balance this out. How could it be Carrie Cook when she's sure it was Mayfield? And she starts re-examining this memory, this memory that could very well be a false memory. Maybe it was him. Now that I think about it, he's got long hair. I think the person that was there had long hair. He's a little shorter and smaller than Mayfield. Maybe the person was smaller. And suddenly, her identification of James Mayfield becomes an identification of Carrie Max Cook. But maybe the reality of it is, when she really stopped and thought about it and recalled it, the person that she saw in that room had long hair. And she assumed that must be Carrie Max Cook because he has long hair. Or it could be that that original memory was correct, and James Mayfield was there, and he was helping to cover up his daughter's crime. Like I said in his interview, he seemed very uncomfortable talking about Luella. So I think whatever the case is, if she was the one that committed the murder, then I believe he knows about it. And his wife knows about it. And maybe for all these years, they weren't lying to cover up for James Mayfield killing Linda Jo Edwards. Maybe the reason that he's been lying for all these years was actually to cover up for the fact that his daughter killed Linda Jo Edwards. all of this new information, it's time to change my approach with this case. From this point forward, I will no longer be just reporting on the Carrie Max Cook case. I'm taking Carrie's case on as our case. We're going to investigate it just like we do every other case, and we are going to figure out who killed Linda Jo Edwards. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Don't forget, if you like the music, that you can purchase one or all of the songs, either on iTunes, just look for the Truth and Justice, the music soundtrack, or you can go to truthandjusticemusic.com and preview the album and purchase it on any other format besides iTunes. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Special thank you to Daniel Schaefer, who works tirelessly on very short deadlines to do the editing of the podcast. I want to thank our listener, Wade, who made the trip and brought all the equipment to get us the audio for the entire hearing and all the events that happened after the hearing. Thank you to all of today's sponsors, Ford Athletics, Squarespace, and Stamps.com for funding today's program. And as always, I want to thank all of you for your willingness to engage and do anything you can to help out. Keep sending in all of your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.